Good morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Russell Horner. I'm one of the elders here at the church, and it is my privilege to be able to preach the gospel this morning from the Word. So let's get into God's Word. We are in Psalm 119 again as we continue our journey through this incredible psalm. Verses 41 through 48 today. This is the Vav stanza. It might say that at the top of your Bible. Or the Wow stanza. The Vav is like the newer pronunciation. If you want to talk more like Jesus, you'd say the Wow stanza, I guess. But it's this little bitty Hebrew letter that starts the beginning of every verse. We can't see that in English, but it is there. If you want to see it, let us know sometimes. We'll show you. It's pretty great. But just like every other stanza, this stanza teaches us about the value and the beauty and the glory of God's Word. And so let us attend to it. Let's hear the Word of the Lord together. Psalm 119, verses 41 to 48. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. Your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. And I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Let's pray. Father, your word is such a gift, and it is a blessing each week to gather as your people around your word, to hear it read and taught, to sing your word, to pray your word, and to be fed each week. Father, thank you for giving us life. Thank you for saving us through Christ and giving us your word and promising your spirit would work through the word. I pray that we would attend to your word this morning. You would encourage us and comfort us and guide us as your word teaches us. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, in Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his disciples that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. That is a wonderful promise, isn't it? And it's a promise we take very seriously here at Sovereign Grace, which I'm sure you've noticed. We talk about witnessing for Christ, especially in missions. We preach about missions. We pray about missions. We even send people we love to countries really far away that are dangerous so that they can be witnesses for Jesus there. We spend our time and our money training students through Radius and now RTI so that they can be better witnesses for Christ in areas where He is not known. In so many ways, this church is devoted to making Christ known in very difficult places. And I praise God for that. We constantly thank the Lord for doing that at this church. And we pray no matter what happens in the future, that never changes. But sometimes, I wonder if we are just as eager, just as intentional about being witnesses for Jesus here as we hope our missionaries are overseas. Are we just as intentional in building relationships with friends and family and coworkers that we hope one day leads to gospel proclamation? leads to their salvation? Do we pray regularly for the people that don't know Christ around us just as much as we do for these unreached people groups? 
Again, I don't want to minimize what we're doing overseas. I'm thankful for that. We need to reach the nations. But we're also called to be witnesses here. And my fear is that for some of us, we might simply be outsourcing our witness for Jesus. We might be trying to hand it off to the professionals, to the missionaries or the pastors to kind of do it on our behalf somewhere else. Because I tell you what, it can feel a lot safer to write a check than it can to go next door and talk to my neighbor about Jesus when they heard me arguing with my family. It can feel a whole lot easier to pray for people I don't know than for people that I know hate me. To open my mouth to my family when I know they might throw the sin that I've done right back in my face. It's hard to be bold for Jesus here. And to be completely honest, this is something I struggle with as well. I try to be intentional. I try to be prayerful about talking to people about Jesus. And sometimes I do a good job and faithful. And other times I fail miserably. Recently I did a funeral for a mom of a family member that goes to this church. And it was out of town. And on the way back home I went to the gas station. And I was all dressed up and did the funeral. And the guy said, whoa, you're dressed up for a Saturday. What's going on? I said, oh, I just came from a funeral. And it was a really hard day, but there were a lot of good people there. The guy said, yep, you know, that's what it's all about, being good. And in my mind, I thought, I need to say something. I felt the conviction, and I thought, you should say, the only goodness you can have is if you know Jesus. And they know Jesus, that's why they're so good. Do you know Jesus? I thought to say that. You know what I said? Yep. (laughs) See ya. (laughs) All the way home all the way home i was so frustrated and i just couldn't believe why would i not share the gospel that i just literally proclaimed at the funeral why would i pass up something that god just served right up to me like that am i the only one that struggles with this anybody else struggle with this fear okay good if you didn't raise your hand you can repent later for lying so yes this is a struggle we feel isn't it even though we're at a church that makes witnessing for christ a priority each and every one of us still struggles with being a witness for Christ. Which means we have a lot to learn from the psalmist in this stanza. Because this stanza teaches us what it looks like to be a faithful witness. It talks about what a faithful witness does and prays. Really what this stanza is, is a prayer to God for God to make us a faithful witness. It's not a checklist to become a faithful witness. It's asking God to do these great things in us. And so what are those things? There are four things in this passage I want to point out. And it's really easy. They come every two verses. So it's easy to follow. So the first is a witness of grace. The second is a witness of perseverance. The third is a witness of boldness. And the fourth is a witness of delight. A witness of grace, perseverance, boldness, and delight. So let's look at verse 41 together at the witness of boldness. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. Your salvation according to your promise. Oh, this is the perfect place to start to be a faithful witness. Let your steadfast love come to me. Let me experience it myself, not just talk about it. Your salvation according to your word. Now this word for steadfast love is all over the Old Testament. It's the first time it's used in this psalm, but this is this Hebrew word for hesed steadfast love loving kindness it says in the nasb and i love that idea because it says let's just take as many words for love and cram them together and that's what this word means it's god's covenant love as it's used in other places covenant faithfulness look even here it's associated with his covenant name isn't it let your steadfast love come to me O lord yahweh 
according to your promise, according to your covenant. So the psalmist is begging here for God's steadfast, enduring, persevering, pursuing, never to be denied love of God. The kind of love that comes after us in our sins and doesn't wait until we get cleaned up first. The psalmist says, I need that love. Lord, I need you to keep your covenant right now before I take one more step. Why? Why is there such an urgent need for this love and this salvation? Look at verse 42. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. So the salvation here is actually rescue from these taunts. This slander, this reproach. We've been hearing about this throughout Psalm 119, and that's what he's asking for again. So this is not a plea for saving grace. It's not a plea for that big, ultimate rescue that Christ is giving us. This is a covenant member. He's trusting in the Lord for salvation. He's not asking for saving grace, but for sustaining grace. For the smaller rescue, for God to show up. And that's what he's being taunted about here. It's not easy to tell, but it looks like if he's asking for God to show up, then the taunts are probably, look, your God's not showing up. Your God has abandoned you. Like Noah before the flood. How could you build this ark? You think rain's going to come? You think God's going to do this? You're crazy for building this ark. Or Asaph in Psalm 73, who's trying to keep his life holy for the Lord, and everybody else is doing whatever they want, and their life's fine. And his life's falling apart. And they tell him, in vain, in vain you have kept yourself clean. Look at what your holiness has brought you. Has anyone ever said those things to you? Someone has never said, basically, look, this Christian thing is just a waste of time. You're trusting in an old, outdated book. It's just irrelevant now. You believe a God that you can't see, the God that doesn't seem to be caring about a lot of hurt in the world around you. You sacrifice your money, your time, even for your family for this. And what has it gotten you? Pain. You can't trust this God or His Word. That's what every one of these taunts is about, isn't it? It's the same taunt we heard in the garden, isn't it? You cannot trust this God. And that's what the psalmist is dealing with here. But there's something important about these taunts no matter who is receiving them. Even though these taunts come to God's people, they're not just directed at us, are they? It's really God that they have a problem with. It's His covenant, His word, His promise that is on the line. It's Him the one that they hate. And so the psalmist here is saying, look, Lord, answer your accusers. Answer your accusers. Even though they're accusing me, they're accusing you. Answer them according to your word. Just show up. Fulfill your covenant. Vindicate yourself by vindicating me. Show me grace. Show your covenant faithfulness in my life so that my life is a witness of grace to them. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, has a lot to say about this kind of grabbing onto the promises of God. Has anybody ever heard of his faith's checkbook? It's an older book that's not as popular anymore, but it's a great title. It's just a daily devotion filled with the promises of God. And what Spurgeon is trying to get at here is that Christians should take the promises of God and treat them as if they're a check written out to us. And then when trials and difficulties come, when temptation shows up, we take that check to God and say, Lord, here it is. I want to cash this in. It's time to pay up. (laughs) That's what it is, taking those things to God. Now, I'm not trying to say that God owes us anything. He is never, ever in our debt. He fulfills His promises whenever and however He wants. And it's still tremendous grace. But as believers, we are called to go to God and to plead with Him like this because He delights to fulfill His Word. 
He's eager to fulfill these promises. And that's what the psalmist is doing. He's trusting in this promise and saying, Lord, keep your promises. Deliver your grace so that I can be a witness to it. And that's the first part. Let's look at the second witness. A witness of perseverance. Verse 43. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. That probably sounds really strange to us. Why would God ever take truth out of our mouth? It's hard enough just to get the truth in there. Just to get the truth to come out in any way. Why would God ever want to take it out of our mouth? Well, what the psalmist is saying here, he's actually stating something that's positive in a negative way. The Scripture does this a lot, and it's very poetic most of the time, but Paul does this in Romans 1, verse 16. You might recognize this. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. Not ashamed. That's very negative, but what is he saying? He's saying, I'm proud. I'm happy to proclaim the Gospel. So he's saying it in a negative way, even though it's a positive thing. Well, the psalmist is doing the same thing here. Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. He means, Lord, don't let your truth leave my mouth. Keep your truth in me. Keep it on my lips forever. Let me persevere as a witness of grace. That's what he's asking for. Now, why would he suddenly be concerned about perseverance? He seemed pretty confident that the Lord was going to show up. Why would he be concerned about keeping the truth on his lips? Well, look at verse 43 again. Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. Why? For my hope is in your rules. This is the part where this translation gets a bit frustrating. It's actually not very clear what they mean here. The New American Standard says this, and it's so much better. For I wait on your ordinances, your judgments. Lord, I wait for your outcome. The psalmist doesn't know when God's rescue will come. He doesn't know when God's steadfast love will actually show up. And so what does he do in the meantime? Does he taunt back? Does he return evil for evil? No. Does he give up on God for not working according to his timeline or his agenda? Just try to fix things himself? Try to deliver himself out of this? No. He waits for the judge. And he asks to be preserved to persevere until that rescue comes. Because he knows God is on the job. That God has his back. That God will not let this injustice slide. You know, some people think that because Christians serve a wrathful God, a God that cares about justice and judges sin, that that makes us wrathful and judgmental people ourselves. But it's actually just the opposite, isn't it? Because God is a God of wrath, because God deals with injustice, we can turn it over to Him. We don't have to take matters into our own hands. He's a lot better at handling it than us. Way better. He's the one that says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. So we can hate injustice. But then turn it over to Him and say, I will wait for you to judge this. I will wait for you to take care of this. And God's judgment can actually be a great comfort to believers. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. Lord, I will wait. And while I wait, help me to be a witness. Help me to continue to teach and preach and say that Your grace is amazing. And what else? Verse 44. I will keep your law continually, forever and ever. We've heard vows like this throughout the psalm, haven't we? I will keep your law. I will be holy. Guard me according to your law. We've heard this over and over again, this vow for perseverance, forever and ever. And this goes right along with, Lord, don't take your truth out of my lips. He's saying, Lord, let me preach your truth and then live your truth. It has to be both, doesn't it? To be a faithful witness. To be able to witness in word and in deed. Oh, we don't want to be those people that are all talk. 
We just say a lot of things about God and don't live it out. Don't back it up. That just empties the gospel. But we also don't want to be the people that just do random acts of kindness and just hope that they get the message. That's not it. We need both. We need to preach the gospel. Preach the gospel with our life and with our words. I know some of you have probably heard this quote. I've seen it for years now. It's preach the gospel at all times and only use words when necessary. You know, I get what people are trying to say with that. There's a way where our lives witness to the grace of God. But I, I really hate this quote. It really bothers me because it's so misleading. If you just live righteously, how does anybody know you're not a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness or just a really nice atheist? They're out there. They're trusting in their niceness to be saved. How does anybody know unless you show up and speak? And Paul says in Romans 10, how are they to believe in Him who they've never heard? How are they to hear unless someone preaches to them? There's no witness without preaching. There's no gospel testimony without words. But also, if we don't back those words up with holiness, with living according to God's Word, with repentance, it empties the gospel of its power. We've seen this over and over again, haven't we? With church leaders falling, and everything they said is just thrown out the window, whether it was true or not. The psalmist says, I want to preserve as your witness. I want to persevere as your witness. So God, give me a testimony, a witness of word and deed. So we've seen the witness of grace, the witness of perseverance. Let's look at the witness of boldness. Probably the most challenging part to us. Verse 45. And I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. This is beautiful imagery. It's foreign to us. Maybe some of you might even recoil and think, wait a minute, Jesus said stay off the wide road. Narrow is the road I want. Why is the psalmist talking about wide roads here? That's not what's going on. When he's saying wide places, he's talking about a wide open path, a nice straight wide open path with nothing to slow me down. I can walk around freely, unencumbered, unconstrained, and nothing will trip me up as opposed to a narrow path or a windy path which would trip me up and get me lost and make me frustrated. And so the psalmist is saying, look, I want this wide open place. Look, I know how this is going to end. I know that God will come through. Your steadfast love that I ask for will come to me and you will silence these taunts. And Lord, I know you will keep me by your grace to the end. You will give me a ministry, a witness in word and deed. That's where this is all headed. So even while my path looks crazy ahead, while I have so many stumbling blocks and sufferings and difficulties ahead, I know you're going to give me a nice wide open path because your hand is behind me every single step of the way. And I know you will clear the way so I can have boldness and freedom and confidence to share the gospel because I know that you will speak through me. I know that you will work as if the way in front of me is wide open. Not even powerful people will slow me down, which is what verse 46 says. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. Not even the most powerful men in the world will be able to stop this, to stop the witness of God. And we've seen that in Acts. When they persecuted the church, what happened? The church grew. More people trusted. God gave them more boldness. God does do this in and through us. I think of the words of Paul in Romans 8. For if God is for us, who can be against us? What obstacle could possibly slow us down for proclaiming this truth? We should be bold ministers of the Word of God. But that's so much easier to say than it is to do, isn't it? 
I know there's this perception out there, especially in the media, where Christians are a bunch of overzealous, Bible-thumping, crazy evangelists. That's just not true. It's like an insider secret or something. That's just not true about us at all. We're not Bible thumpers. Sometimes I think Christians are barely even Bible readers. Our problem isn't that we have too much zeal or too much boldness. It's that we don't have enough. Why is that? Why do we lack boldness? Why are we timid and hesitant to share the Gospel, the Gospel that saves us through Christ? Why do we hesitate? Well, I believe because we actually believe the lies of the world. When the world tells us, you don't have the authority to tell people what to do. You don't have the authority to tell people how to live. All you're allowed to do in this world is to give advice. Here it is. Take it or leave it. Once you go outside of that, you're out of bounds. But when you preach Christ and say Jesus is the only way, and you say you ought to live this way, you should act like this, you need this grace in your life, well then that's out of bounds. That's not okay. But do you know what? I've found that more and more people are talking that way. More and more people are speaking with authority on things that don't even matter. You better wear a mask, otherwise you're going to kill grandma. You better not wear a mask, or you're going to be a government pawn. People talk like that all the time, and it's just like, what do I do? Those don't sound like suggestions. Those sound like sermons. Even though people will say all day long, you can't tell me what to do. They're still preaching a message. Everyone preaches. Even if what they're preaching is that there's nothing to preach about. So why would we lack boldness when we have the authority of God? God Himself that would speak through us. We should be bold. Another lie we believe is that you don't know enough to really help people, to save people. And we ask ourselves, what if I get a question I don't know? What if I can't remember a Bible verse or a passage that I should share? What if I just stumble over my words? What if it doesn't make sense? I spout some heresy and I lead them astray. There's so many things I could get wrong. Yes, there is. You know what I say to that? Trust the Lord. Open your mouth and speak, and God has promised to speak through you. You don't have an answer for everything in your normal life. You just Google it, don't you? It's the way it works now. But God has promised to give us the words to speak even through stumbling, fumbling fools like ourselves. I love what Charles Bridges says about this. He says, A stammering confession is better than silence. If we cannot say all we want of or for our Savior, let us say all we can. Even a word spoken in weakness may be a word of almighty power and a present help to some fainting spirit. We have a ministry of boldness and our God has promised to work through that boldness. All we need to do is trust Him and leave the rest up to Him. We've seen a witness of boldness, a witness of perseverance, and a witness of grace. Let's look lastly at the witness of delight these last two verses verse 47 for i find my delight in your commandments which i love i lift up my hands towards your commandments which i love (laughs) i love these verses because they're so awkward (laughs) you notice that he breaks the whole poetic rhythm just to cram in which i love two more times and we get the point without that They're totally unnecessary. He says, I delight in your word. I love your word. I even raise my hands, verse 48, to your word. This picture of longing, desiring God in his word. And so we say, look, I get it. You love God's word. He said, no, no, you don't get it. I need to throw in which I love two more times to make it just sound weird and to show you that I love the word. The psalmist is delighting in the word right before us. 
Now, why is the psalmist so emphatic, so intentional about his love of the Word? Well, I hope if you've been following with us in Psalm 119, you've noticed why that's true. Because it's God's Word that reveals the steadfast love that He's desiring. It's God's Word that reveals the saving grace and the sustaining grace that we desperately need. It's God's Word that reveals the very Savior to save us from our biggest problem in the world, our sin and misery and judgment. He's the one to live the perfect life, to go to the cross in our place, to bear the wrath of God for our sins, raised from the dead to conquer sin and death so that we might have life. We know about that through the Word, don't we? Why would we not love the Word? Even though it still gives us boldness and teaches us of how God will be faithful. It guides us every step of the way and teaches us about how good God is. How could we not love the Word like the psalmist? Maybe you're thinking, well, I know that, but it's still a struggle. To be honest, I find it a lot easier to love things like entertainment or family or friends, even food at times. In fact, it's actually kind of a chore for me to try to love the Word like this. How did the psalmist get here? Well, look at the end of verse 48. And I will meditate on your statutes. Or really, I will continue to meditate. Because it's obvious he has been meditating on God's Word already. This kind of love and delight does not come natural to fallen, broken, sinful people like us. The psalmist has committed himself to meditating on God's Word and he trusted God to bring the delight. And that's what God does. We commit ourselves to trusting and meditating on God's Word. That's the means by which God brings this kind of love, this kind of delight to us. And you think, you know what? I'm not good at meditating. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Believe it or not, every single one of us is good at meditating. We meditate on all kinds of things. Fixing our mind on all kinds of things. The sad part is the things we fix our minds on bring discontentment and discouragement and bitterness and escape or distraction. But when we fix our minds on God and His Word, really meditate on it, not just know it or articulate it or be able to argue well with it, but to let it dwell within us, then God brings forth the fruit of delight. And that delight is a witness to this fallen world. One of the best witnesses there can actually be. And you know that even if you're here and you're not a believer. Because you know that you chase delight all over the place. That this world is constantly lying to you about what will satisfy you, what will give you hope, and what will give you peace apart from God Himself. And all you will find if you chase it long enough is that you're chasing the wind. It will never satisfy you. It will never give you hope because your biggest problem is solved in Jesus. You need to be reconciled to God because of your sin. And judgment is the only thing that you need fixed. And Jesus comes to fix that judgment, to live the life we failed to live, to pay for our sins so that if we trust Him by faith, we're freed of sin and judgment and we can actually have peace with God. We actually can have the kind of joy that this passage talks about. Now maybe you're here this morning as a believer, but you look at this and still say, you know, I thought I was doing okay going into this, but I am a failure at being a faithful witness. I don't delight in God's law like this. I struggle with boldness, with perseverance. Honestly, I struggle with believing that God's grace is at work in my life, let alone proclaiming that to other people. What do I do with all this law it feels like? Well, if that's what you're thinking this morning, you missed something very important about what I said in the beginning. This is not a checklist. It's not just the way 
that you get to be a faithful witness by all of your strength and power you can muster up. This is a prayer. Asking God to do what He's already promised. To make us a faithful witness. And the good news is that if you are in Christ, that work has already begun. Because Jesus came to live the life that we failed to live, including to be the perfect witness in our place. He came to embody the steadfast, everlasting, perfect love of God. He came to conquer our greatest enemies. He went to the cross displaying the covenant faithfulness of God for the world to see so that every promise, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. He also came to be mocked and taunted in our place. And where we failed and would mock back, He trusted the Word. As Satan mocks Him and taunts Him in the desert, turn that rock into bread. What does Jesus say? Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He delighted in the Word in the midst of struggle. And on the cross, as He was being punished for the sins of the world, people still taunted Him, saying He trusts in God. Let God deliver Him now. After all, He said He's the Son of God. What does Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is our perfect substitute in every single way. If we trust Him for His perfect life, death, and resurrection and the forgiveness of sins, then we are declared righteous in His sight and the Holy Spirit goes to work on us. And Jesus has promised to make us fishers of men. Jesus has promised to send His Spirit to make us witnesses. All we have to do is trust the Lord. Pray this kind of prayer. Ask God to do it in us and open our mouths and stand back and watch God work. Let me pray. Father, You are incredibly good and gracious to sinful people like us. We exalt Your great name because Your Son has done everything necessary to save us. He kept Your law, delighted in Your Word, persevered to the end, and He is the true witness of grace. Help us cling to Him, Father. Help us trust in Him by faith to find joy and peace in His finished work. And out of that trust, may we have delight that leads to faithful proclamation, that leads us to witness to Your grace everywhere we go, because it's obvious that we have been with Jesus. Father, we pray that You would do that work in us. Only You can. And we know that You're pleased to do it. So we trust You. Trust You to do that work and work among us. We pray this in Jesus' name, for His sake. Amen.